Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're very happy to have you with us again uh, today. A couple of notes before we introduce our panel and start the conversation. Uh, Governor Kemp is going to be holding a news conference sometime later this afternoon. We'll carry it on GPB radio and on our social media platforms. Uh, He is expected to announce, uh, though, that bars, nightclubs, and live performance venues will remain Closed, even as he's uh, uh, opened other uh, uh, businesses across the state or told them they're welcome to open, whether they do it or not. uh, He apparently is going to announce later today that uh, bars, nightclubs and live performance venues cannot uh, open. So we'll keep you on top of that as it develops this afternoon. Um, I also want to thank you for even more emails. I got a lot again from you yesterday, and I continue to appreciate your telling me what you're dealing with in the virus. As I've said before, I try to answer every email I get, and I will continue to do that. If for some reason you sent me an email a while ago and I didn't respond to you, please ping me again, uh, because I really do think it's important to um, stay in touch with you and and listen to what you're dealing with. Uh, Also, I should say in that regard... A number of you have written with uh, issues that you're having around getting an absentee ballot uh, uh, sent to you. Uh, Many have said you sent your request to the Secretary of State's office. You've told me that you haven't gotten your ballots yet. We will stay on top of that sort of thing with the Secretary of State's office. But I also will tell you that it's worse, what, at... at, uh, May 12th, we're still a month from the election. The Secretary of State's office has something like 1.1 or so million requests for absentee ballots. So uh, let's see how that develops. And if as we get close to Election Day, say two weeks out, you should um, stay in touch with me about whether you're getting your ballots. All right, enough of me. Let's get to our panel for today's show. It is Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, AJC senior reporter, is uh, here with me today. Tamara, how are you holding up? You're still self-isolating. <laughs> I got a new dog last weekend, so we've been getting to know each other and I've been getting out. It's been great. <laughs> what kind of dog? Where did you get the dog from? I got her from and the Angels Among name? Us. Uh, <laughs> her name is Winnie and I got her from the Angels Among Us Rescue. She's <laughs> half hound, half bulldog. So she's got energy, but she's lazy. So she's perfect. <laughs> Well, congratulations on having a companion during your isolation. James Salzer is with us. Nobody covers the state budget, follows it as closely as he has for literally decades now for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. James, how are things around your place? You're sheltering in place as well. Are you finding it difficult? Well, I also have a new dog, and uh, and, uh, German England is keeping me busy. (laughs) Well, thank you for mentioning him because he is our special guest today. We're really delighted that uh, State Representative Terry England, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee and a state rep from Auburn, Georgia, is uh, with us today. Uh, Terry England, you're sheltering. Are you back and forth between the Capitol and home or are you trying to stay sequestered, to to, to use a phrase? 
Uh, pretty much just staying around the house. Uh, been in chapel one time since March 16th, but uh, we're we're zooming and webexing and all that fun stuff. This this old dog. I don't have a new dog, but this old dog is learning new tricks. Um, I, 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 think, I think it was appropriate that you said that James had been around forever doing this. As a matter of fact, he's been around. They were typing the paper out on stone tablets and sending it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I certainly believe him when he says you're keeping him incredibly busy. Of course, we invited you to come come on with us uh, for the first half of our show today because uh, we know you're wrestling with an alligator, to say the very least. Um, James, I'm going to turn it over to you in a second because I want you to help set the stage for the questions we're going to want to ask Representative England. But um, according to the reporting that you've been doing, James, state agencies have now been told to cut some $3.5 billion total from their budgets for fiscal year 2021, which starts on July 1st. State agencies have been told that across the board, no exceptions, they need to submit uh, budgets that have 14% reductions in what they're asking for in 2021. We had state, just to show how difficult this situation is, James, in April, revenue collections by the state were down, what, 36%, more than a billion dollars. Are those basically the headlines of what uh, Representative England's got to deal with here, James? Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, it, it's essentially the, the, uh, the part of the, part of the revenue decline last, last month was due to them moving the, um, uh, tax day from April 15th to June, July 15th. So that's, that. that that was part of it, um, but then we're the, the those numbers are a little bit misleading because the um, because the um, uh, sales tax information is from mostly from March uh, when we were just starting to close down. First half of the month we were not closed down, um, so uh, April numbers are going to be much worse, likely. Um, so it's kind it was kind of a. a yeah, we took away income tax numbers that were coming in, some of the income tax money, but then we also weren't fully feeling this impact of the sales tax. So, um, yeah, they're, they're going to be, uh, you know, obviously the the, uh, the chairman of the appropriations committees and, and, uh, and the governor's office are going to be looking at numbers almost every day, not every day, um, about what's coming in because they know the bad, the bad number won't really come in I mean, we won't really see the full effect until the about the time the session cranks up. Um, Representative England, on May 1st, you were one of the signatories to a letter that went out to all department heads and agencies. And, and here's what you said, essentially, just to summarize a couple of lines of it. We find ourselves in unprecedented times. COVID-19 has dealt a blow to our local, state, national, and world economies. Words cannot express our appreciation for the incredible work your agencies employ and employees have been doing during this time. We realize that working remotely has presented many challenges. However, we have heard nothing but praise for your determination, uh, compassion, and strength. You've proven your commitment to all Georgians. Uh, and then comes the hard part. However, however, you've got to cut 
revenues across the board. Uh, this isn't your first go-round in dealing with a very, very difficult budget, is it, Terry? No, unfortunately, it's not. It, you know, it's, uh, you kind of wish these things were kind of once-in-a-lifetime events. Uh, unfortunately, I get to enjoy two of them at least. So, uh, yeah, it's... It, it, um, I came into the chairmanship role kind of about halfway through uh, the last recession, uh, stepped in in 2011 as we were still cutting, and then wound up with several years of, of flat budgets, uh, just allowing for increases in enrollment, whether, uh, whether it be um, for education growth or Medicaid growth, those kind of things. But otherwise, it kept everything fairly flat. Uh, through all that time, so it, yeah, you know, we get get a second bite at this apple, and this one's going to be a little more difficult because uh, the places that we went and found savings during the Great Recession, uh, we've never really added those things back. So it means that that these things are are kind of that lean muscle stuff that we left uh, and and gradually rebuilt from that time. I have a so I want question. Tomorrow wants to get a nine. <laughs> I'm sorry for cutting in, Bill. I, I have a question for, for Chairman England. Um, you know, there, there's a chance that, that Congress could, could step in and deliver states and cities some emergency aid, but there's some division, especially among Republicans, about whether to, uh, about whether to do that. And, I, and there's certainly some resistance along political lines as well. Do you want to give money to blue states or, or to cities that have traditionally mismanaged their, uh, their finances? And I'm curious right now, as it stands, how much um, you're counting on on being able to get that money from Washington in time for the the upcoming session. Well, I I don't I don't think we'll see it before we have to adopt the budget to have it in place by July one. Uh, there would be a chance that that we see it sometime in July or August. I think uh, one of the things that we've kind of uh, suggested is loosening of the rules that were tied to the care money on the on the funds that came directly to states too. Uh, right now those funds just say that you can only use them for a COVID response. Um, but the thing is that that those kind of overshot the runway a little bit. I think uh, folks were thinking that that the, the cost of the response was going to be a good bit greater than what it actually has been. It's been significant, don't get me wrong, but at the same time uh, to the tune of what what the federal government sent out to the states, there is a little bit of room there that if those rules were, were relaxed, we would have the opportunity to use some of those dollars for revenue backfill, too. Uh, the debate is, of course, centered around where some of the other, uh, especially some of the Rust Belt states, are wanting dollars to help with their pensions and those kind of things. Well, what we've been telling folks is, look, let's, let's just look at the, the lost revenue piece those, those pension issues are something that have been going on for decades and decades. And, and uh, the states like us that have managed our pensions well and have kept up with our required payments there, uh, it wouldn't be fair to us for those states to be bailed out on those things. But if you did something that was just based on revenue, then that would be fair and equitable across the board to everyone. James? Yeah, one of the questions I had was, uh, um, is this all going to be done with cuts? Is this, are you all going to be looking at, I mean, there's talks of, it's been, there's been proposals raised on cigarette taxes. There's 
talk, you know, I, I'm assuming when I go on Twitter, I always see the casino lobbyists saying, you know, hey, we, maybe we can make a we can make a, you know, run at that. Um, do you think that there will be efforts to raise money in other ways besides the cuts? I mean, obviously you're going to have cuts because you can't raise enough money to to make up that 3.5 or 3.6 billion. But um, what do you think of that? I I suspect there'll be some that that bring some some measures to the table to look at. I don't know what they'll be. Um, I I have been hearing a little discussion on the tobacco tax over the last few days. Um, the thing on casinos, uh, by the time they would get stood up and going, it would not be anything that would be uh, helpful to us at this point. I, you know, and, and many others know that I, I remain opposed, strongly opposed to that. But um, it would, by the time those were put in place and got up and rolling, uh, I certainly hope we're well past whatever impact we've seen before we'd even see the, the, the benefit of the taxes from that. So I, some do you think cigarette taxes has a chance? Do I, I'm sorry. Do you think, I'm, do you think the, there's a chance you will see a tax increase on the of cigarette taxes? And, you know, obviously you're probably going to want to throw vaping in there. I, I don't know. Uh, like I said, I've just really this week, and this is only Tuesday, uh, have just started hearing or seeing a little bit of chatter going back and forth in some emails as it as it relates to the defacto tax, I know there's a pretty good appetite out there uh, among some folks to to look at at actually raising that, at least getting it up to the kind of southeastern state average, anyway. Right. Uh, Terry, let me jump in. Uh, when when we talk about the state budget, oh, and by the way, I have to always give a disclaimer when we talk about the state budget. Uh, GPB is a state agency. Uh, and so we do rely on funds for some of the operations of Georgia Public Broadcasting, uh, and Georgia Public Broadcasting has been asked to take cuts, too. I do also always say when we talk about the budget, the political rewind and other programming we do is funded by donations from listeners, uh, not by the money that the state uh, gives to uh, GPV. But, but you do need to know we are a state agency. Terry, here's what I want to ask you. You know, when, when we talk about the state budget— there are a lot of people out there who say, who really cares? This affects whether state employees have jobs or not. And we're not worried. We know that state government is often bloated and wasteful. At least that's, that's conventional thinking. But I want to be clear about something here with you, and you certainly can talk about this. If we're going to take, if you're going to have to find $3.5 billion in cuts, these are cuts that are not just going to affect people who happen to work for state government. This is going to be across the board. Education is going to take a hit, which means some counties may have problems with paying, having as many teachers on staff or doing everything they want with state money for education. Health care can be affected. County health departments can be affected. So this notion that this, oh, who cares about state employees, that would be the wrong way to look at this, it seems to me. Am I correct about that? Yeah, exactly, Bill. I, it. it it rolls into so many different things. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, teachers, you mentioned health care, but I mean, you know, public safety was uh, state troopers, uh, mm -hmm. correct, corrections with, with prison guards, uh, juvenile justice with, with their, their officers. Uh, all those different things that, that flow out of, of 
state government services, driver services, DNR, state parks, all of those things will see an impact, um, unfortunately, when we, when we go into this mode of having to make significant cuts. So it will, you know, er everyone will see it. Uh, everyone's seeing it in their bill fold now because either their work is slowing down or, or their businesses are shuttered for a little while or whatever. But, you know, we, we solely rely on state taxpayer dollars as revenue to operate. And so when those numbers decrease, we don't have the ability or the option um, to, to figure out anything else to do but to reduce our spending. James, you want to jump back in and then tomorrow? Yeah, I, I was going to point out and, uh, another thing about this. The difference, the difference with, with school is that, and we saw during the um, during the Great Recession, is that schools have uh, have some options that the state don't have. This, this, I, I live in the city of Decatur, and um, we we love our um, property taxes here, and so the school district in Metro Atlanta. Um, can raise proper taxes, they can raise assessments. I mean, there are things that, you know, none, none of those are great, but there are things that can be done. I think the, the bigger the bigger question is that that if you're in uh, Randolph County or if you're in uh, 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 Stewart County, you don't have the property-based tax base to do that. So you, when, when they say, when the state says we're going to cut, 14% of the money you have, you're cutting 14%. And I remember during the Great Recession, there were some of these places that were cutting out ROTC and cutting out band and cutting out you know various programs because they they couldn't pay the teachers um, because they don't have a, they don't have any way around it, which is closer, I guess, than the closer to what the state is. I mean, the state doesn't the state can't raise property taxes and they're not going to raise income or sales taxes, uh, you know, well, to raise more money. Well, Terry, and that is a terrific point. It, this it, it, this budget, uh, you know, you had finally gotten to a point in the last years of Nathan Deal's uh, tenure that you, there was great excitement about the fact that you were back to the point where you could fully fund uh, the, the state education. Uh, and that meant that those school districts in other parts of the state that don't have much of a tax base were at least getting some more help from you all. But uh, you're going to have to rethink that. And the other point that James makes that's important, I think, is the potential for whatever budget cuts you have to make, and you'll tell me if you think I'm right about this or not, this having a disproportionate impact, perhaps, on rural Georgia communities in a general way as opposed to Metro Atlanta, although we know everybody's going to take hits. Terry? Well, yes and no, Bill. Um the education funding formula that we use, Quality Basic Education Act, QBE, does have built into it an equalization formula that does try uh, to offset the, the funding disparities between, uh, you know, large metro systems where there's a, a large tax base versus those communities and, and counties that have uh, smaller tax bases. Ultimately, it does have an impact there. But equalization does help, and sparsity grants as well within QBE help offset some of some of that. Not all of it, but uh, you know, James is completely right on that. That 
you know, when you're you're looking at the city of Decatur and its tax base and what is called the, the per student wealth, which is the tax base divided by the number of students, and you come up with the per wealth of the system. When you look at that versus some of the smaller counties in, in rural southeast Georgia, rural northeast Georgia, rural southwest Georgia, rural northwest Georgia, um, it does become an issue. But again, like I said, equalization does help offset some of that uh, impact. I will say that equalization, the biggest beneficiary of equalization is Gwinnett County. It is. So, it is. Yeah. But they are, uh, you know, they have a little over 10% of the total students uh, in the state. And like you say, uh, they are the biggest beneficiary. But I will tell you, when we adjusted the equalization formula uh, about seven years, six or seven years ago now, uh, it greatly, uh, significantly decreased the amount of dollars that would be going to Gwinnett uh, today, but significantly increased the number of dollars that would be going to the smaller systems because it, it became weighted more toward those smaller, poorer systems. I have another question for, for Chairman England. Um, we've been talking a lot about cuts, and obviously there's going to be a lot of painful cuts coming up in the in the months ahead. But I'm wondering um, about targeted investments at this point, um, because I, I've been writing a lot about contact tracing, for example, these last couple months. And there's going to be a real scale up at the Department of Public Health to, to help contain this, um, this virus. And I'm wondering if there are if there is going to be any room for, for investments in public health or, or anything that you think really does need to be a priority moving forward in terms of add-ons that, that maybe you weren't spending money on these last couple of years? Yeah, I think, um, I think we'll take and look at public health probably a little bit differently than we have in the past. Um, it has certainly shown there, you know, what has been going on has certainly shown the importance of having a, a robust public health system out there across the state. Um, and I, I think we'll take some long view consideration there at doing something toward revamping that whole system. That that system has really not had a, a revamping in decades. Um, I'm not sure that it's ever had one. James would remember back when it was created, probably in the 1890s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 but I think we're going to have to look, um, you know, once everything, once the dust kind of settles and you, you've got the chance to kind of look back over your shoulder and see see where you did really good and see where you kind of messed up, I think we'll have an opportunity then to look at is there a better way or more strategic way to make investments there and go forward. Do you, do you have a sense already of where, where the gaps are, you know, where, where the state has had some shortcomings in the recent past that, that you think will need to be addressed sooner rather than later? Um, not anything specifically. Some of it, of course, is manpower um, and, and just the ability to stand up a, a response. The other thing that, that's kind of coming out of this, too, is, you know, we, we've, we're all joining virtually here on the radio show this morning, but we've seen a, a huge increase in the amount of teleworking that's been done, and I kind of segue from that into telemedicine. And... We've got a very good backbone in public health and telemedicine. Uh, some places more robust than others as far as capabilities there at public health at, at an office in a county. Uh, I think we'll, we'll look at certainly strengthening that system going forward. Uh, I know my wife is doing her physical uh, 
tomorrow or Thursday one is at our local position via FaceTime. Um, and then he's going to decide if any panels need to be run from that, you know, all of those kind of things. But telemedicine, I, we, we have huge capabilities there. We've just never really stepped up to the plate and said, okay, we're going to move toward doing that. And some of that's been because of the compensation model for the providers. Um, a lot of those rules have been eased and changed during this, and I think they'll stay in place to allow uh, Medicaid and Medicare dollars to, to flow a whole lot easier toward telehealth than what it has in the past, too. And, and public health would be a big piece well, of that. Well, you bring up a really good point. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, you know, Mary Margaret Oliver was uh, on the show a week or so ago, and she, uh, I know she's a member of your committee, and she uh, talked very passionately about the fact that she believes this is now finally the time for you all to look at not the waivers that the governor has requested, but a broad expansion of Medicaid to bring in federal dollars to help in general, populations that are underserved, but but also specifically in terms of the pandemic. Terry, is there any possibility that working with the governor's office, you are considering whether there should be a broader expansion of Medicaid? What's happening when Mary Margaret makes those passionate pleas in your appropriations committee hearings? Well, Mary Margaret is an incredibly intelligent lady, and I, I enjoy working with her. Oh. Our policy doesn't necessarily mix uh, sometimes, but at the same time, uh, she has been incredibly helpful to me. She, she's got a, a ton of institutional knowledge and, and someone that I can I can lean on from time to time. And, and you know, a lot of issues that come before us are, are not partisan, and they're, they're just right or wrong. And so she has been a tremendous help to me uh, over the well, years. Well, is Medicaid expansion right or wrong? <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> I think she and I probably disagree on that, uh, and we'll continue to disagree on that. I, I've I've got some fundamental um, fundamental hangups on on the Medicaid expansion piece in several different directions, but but one of those is that we still know that Medicaid only reimburses uh, with the provider fee plowback only reimburses for about eighty six cents on the dollar of expense, and it's kind of like the guy that was was buying hammers for three dollars and selling them for two dollars and need a bigger truck because business was so good. Um, that's kind of what you fall into, that trap that you fall into with this. I, I do think that ultimately within the state of Georgia and within what we spend on health care today, that we have a way if if everyone would come to the table, we have a way to make sure that that providers are being reimbursed and that individuals have access to health care without doing a Medicaid expansion. Um, we're kind of at the point where we uh, 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 said we would be glad to let you go. Let me ask you this. Could, are you open to one more question from James and Tamara? Or do you, do you, I mean, if you need to go, we, we did promise we'd get you out of here. Tomorrow, yes, You know what, James, go ahead. Thanks, Sherry. So this is a little bit off-seat, but I, I, I noticed during the, during the uh, lockdown that one of the places that seemed to be the busiest outside of grocery stores were the parks. 
And I, I'm wondering if I remember back in the Great Recession, a lot of the part, I mean, DNR got cut about 40 or 45 percent. I mean, they took a disproportionate amount. Um, do you see that an agency like that is, is going to have, are, are they going to have to, like, you know, limit hours and close parks and that kind of stuff to make ends meet? I, you know, that's a good question. It's something that we, some of us, have been talking about in the last week was, you know, we, we made that deep reduction to DNR, uh, and actually they're still uh, 11 or 12% shy of being back to their 2008 funding levels. Um, you know, I, I trust the commissioner to know how to manage through it. I know that, that um, you know, just riding by Fort Yargo State Park here, here in Barrett County, knowing that, you know, folks have been using it to go out and get out, you know, it, we, we may have to look at it a little bit different than we did the last time because of, of kind of our lifestyle changes and increased utilization at the park. So, you know, we're going to look at each one uh, as we get to them individually and just see what we can or can't do. Last question, Tamar. So I want to ask the chairman just about all the other priorities that were there before this crisis hit. All the other things that, that James and myself and my colleagues read about breathlessly, like maternal mortality and teacher pay raises and paid parental leave and income tax cuts. My assumption right now is that all of those are being shelved. Um, is that your your thought as well at this point, or, or is there room for, for any of these, even a scaled back version of any of these in the months ahead? That's a good question, and I know that I'm not involved in as many of the discussions on, on some of the policy issues because uh, we've been trying to figure out this budget. But, you know, when you come to the to the pay raises in general, because the House version had, had a teacher pay raise, but it also had a pay raise for, for state employees across the board, I know we're going to have to really look at that a lot different than what we had. Uh, those may, may or likely will have to be delayed for a year. Um, but some of the other issues, like maternal mortality in particular, I'm certainly hoping that we can, can figure out something to move forward there. Terry England, uh, you've stayed past the time that we promised we get you out of here. We know you're busy. Uh, you also have right now, along with your colleagues on the Appropriations Committee and the Senate Budget Committee, one of the toughest jobs in state government. So, I really appreciate your taking some time to talk with us today, and we will watch as your committee moves forward with your budget plans. Thanks so much for being with us, Representative England. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank y'all. Thanks. Why don't we do this? Let's take a break, and we'll be back with more with uh, James Salzer and Tamar Hallerman. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hellerman and uh, James Salzer, who covers the budget like nobody else. He knows more about the budget than half the people in the state legislature, and they come to him 
to get details. Uh, so, James, we're very glad you could be here uh, as well for this conversation. So, James, let me start with you. As we were talking with uh, Representative England, something really hit me hard that we didn't get a chance to talk about with him. Um, they're going to have to be creating a budget. They'll have figures from May. Uh, they won't have, I mean, by the time we get to June and revenue totals, they better have their budget in fairly good shape. I know they can still make adjustments before July 1st, but they're, they're, I don't even know how you make a revenue estimate uh, based on these difficult times. The fact that despite Governor Kemp's best efforts to try to open the state back up for commerce, it's not happening quickly. I mean, we're still facing months of revenue shortages that could already blow up whatever budget they come up with. It's supposed to start on July 1st. Am I am I assessing that correctly? Right. I mean, I think months is uh, is would be uh, nice. I think it's probably going to it's going to be spreading in the next year. I mean, um, yeah, the, the, they're going to be it's a very difficult situation for them because of the time constraints, because the governor is going to have to make a revenue estimate with maybe a month of coronavirus pandemic shutdown numbers, maybe. And and we'll have no um, or, or little in the way of substantive numbers for, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in, in May and none, obviously, in June. And so then he, he's going to make a revenue. He'll make a revenue estimate and say, this is how much you, you can spend. The legislature will go forward and um, it's really a guesstimate. I mean, it's a guesstimate any year because, I mean, every year you're you're essentially sure. listening to your economist and your economist says something and he's right sometimes and, or she's right. He or she's right sometimes, sometimes not. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is this is really, uh, you know, educated guess uh, to the extreme. We, we don't really know. Um, how the world's going to open back up. We don't know when there's going to be a vaccine. Um, we don't, you know, there's a lot of people who don't, while restaurants and everything else are going to be open, people aren't going. Um, so um, they'll, they'll get a little bit of a bump in July from the uh, tax income tax revenue that they didn't get in April. Uh, so that'll be a little bit of a boost. That'll be a few hundred billion dollars probably. Um, but other than that, Good luck, um, and which is why they're, which is why kind of they're going 14 percent. I mean, they're going 14 percent because um, that's a pretty deep number, and I think Moody's Analytics um, gave them a range of like 12 to 15 percent uh, reduction. So they're going deep with the idea of that. Hopefully, when they come back in January, they don't have to do more. Which, which was not. So let me just, by way of compare, by way of comparison. Uh, give me what was the governor's uh, 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 revenue estimate? What he it's done in percentages. He he right. offers here's the percent of growth I expect to see. What was it in 2019? Do you recall off the top of your head? I, I don't recall what it is. It usually is in the range of like two to three percent. And then this this two to three percent. Yeah, in, in of growth into 2020. This year's budget, which ends. You know, months from now, uh, end of June, um, had been I think one or two percent, and they and, and the governor lowered it um, without any idea that it was going to be a pandemic. He lowered it because there was a slowing of growth, 
And so they had lowered it to like a minuscule rate of growth that, that obviously is still not going to come in. So, um, you know, you know, let me, I'm sorry to jump in like that. Tomorrow, what's interesting about that is when Governor Kemp at the beginning or late last year told agencies unilaterally, he didn't come to the to the legislature to uh, get their input on this, that they were going to take budget cuts uh, four and what was it, James? Four percent and, and, and six, six, and six next year. between the, the supplemental budget for the beginning of this year and the new budget 2021. The governor was excoriated by legislative leaders, by people in the community saying, why are you doing this? While it may have been pure, uh, uh, there, to some extent, there may have been some luck, uh, but he also was foreseeing a downturn. He certainly didn't anticipate a pandemic, but it's beginning to look pretty good that the governor is was scaling back on his expectations for revenue growth tomorrow. I don't know if, if good is the right term, but, but certainly a, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because I remember even Republicans were, you know, some Republicans were giving the governor a hard time for these budget cuts. And, and why are yeah. you cutting if we don't need to, if the, the economy is still in, in pretty decent shape? So um, probably not good is not the word I'd use. Um, one thing I'd like to throw into the conversation that we really haven't talked about yet, you know, the state budget needs to balance. They can cut. They can um, raise taxes. They can cross their fingers that Washington will give them some aid. But there is a reserve fund that the state has been building uh, over the last couple of years, especially during the, the last few years of the Nathan Deal administration. Um, and James, correct me if I'm wrong. I, it's something like 2.5 billion or 2.7 billion. 2.7 billion, and and that's money that they could tap for something like this. The question is whether they they really uh, dig in deep now and and kind of <laughs> bleed it dry because of all the uncertainty right now. We just don't know uh, how deep this crisis is. We don't know when Congress is going to send aid or, or if they're careful and they leave it for, for next year. Yeah, the problem with that is... is that yeah, James, 7, the governor's 2. office 2. has been quiet about it. Yeah, well, $2.7 billion, $2. billion may, may cover what they're losing through the end of this fiscal year. I don't think that they're, they're going to be used. They are using it. And they are they will be using it to pay bills. But you, you don't wanna I mean what happened in the Great Recession is they used this they used like seventy percent of it in one year in that first year and then they were like, Holy cow, this is gonna go on for four or five years. Um so they're they'll use you know half or more of that to get through the end of June. But then the question is how much they're gonna have left for the next fiscal year, which you know, the the the, the Numbers that I've seen, the 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 shortfall could be five or six billion dollars through this next fiscal year. So, you know, including what it is, you know, what this fiscal year next year. So it's it's not it is it is great. I mean, it's important that they have that. And a lot of states have nothing. Um, I mean, there are some big states like Pennsylvania who have nothing in the bank, and I had no idea how you know how that must not be a lot of fun to try to handle that. Uh, this was a win. This was uh, money that uh, Nathan Deal left behind uh, because mm -hmm. he uh, didn't. He, James, you know uh, better than anybody. Uh, Governor Deal uh, did not uh, allow uh, uh, agencies to take big increases to call for big increases in their budgets. He asked them to remain at stable, and as a result of that, he built after the the recession built that uh, fund back up to the 2.7 that Governor Kemp has uh, 
uh, right now. So, you know, it's interesting to look back on Governor Deal's uh, uh, work on that. Um, let me let me ask a, another question. Uh, both of you should jump in on this. When I asked Representative England if there is a possibility of a disproportionate impact on rural parts of the state, he pushed back, uh, specifically in education. But isn't it not is it not correct, James? That some, you talk about telemedicine. That's a that's great. Let's expand telemedicine. But that presumes there's rural broadband in many parts of the state where there isn't rural broadband. The legislature has not been able to come up with a plan for funding rural broad, broadband in any way. Um, uh, when it comes to health care and Medicaid expansion, it is often rural hospitals, rural health centers that suffer the most uh, and, and face shutdowns or losses of services and staff because they don't have the money to continue. So although I know people across the state, James, are going to feel the brunt of the cuts, there is some truth to the fact that areas which are already suffering could see additional suffering. I, I I think that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That, that I I you know, uh, Chairman England is a is a champion for rural, rural Georgia, so that I I absolutely agree with him on anything. Um, I do. I would say even the help that they give school systems, um, I, I just have to take what I've seen and what I saw during the Great Recession and how it the the dispirited impact. Um, on, on rural schools that don't have, and, and ironically, one of the school systems that I went to in Calhoun County, uh, remember the Great Recession was a economic period. Uh, it, it was in one sense, and it was, it was a state budget uh, period in a much longer sense. I mean, it lasted five or six years. And I remember going to a county in uh, Southwest Georgia and visiting the school uh, school system that had to cut back dramatically. And while I was there, their hospital closed down. And it was like, you know, you got you got two for the price of one here. You had a school system that was uh, uh, damaged and you had a hospital that couldn't stay open. So I think it, I think it, any kind of recession or cutback um, just exacerbates the problems that, that Chairman England and, and others um, are, are, are trying to fix. And you, you have to remember also that those for instance, the school systems, but in other areas in rural Georgia, um, the percentage of their funding that comes from the state is is much greater than the percentage of funding in Atlanta City Schools or Cobb County or Gwinnett County, which gets much higher percentage of their money um, from property taxes. So that it's just natural uh, to be a bigger impact. Tomorrow, I got to get to a break, but before I do, I thought you asked an important question. You asked uh, a Representative England about some of the things that you have been writing about, others have been writing about, you know, dealing with maternal mortality in the state, dealing with teacher raises, uh, dealing with income tax cuts. And he was very candid in, I mean, he said, I'm not involved deeply in all those policy issues, but he, we know that those uh, programs are in great trouble right now. I mean, we, we had this opportunity to move forward on some of these important areas that, as you point out, may be jeopardized at this point. Yeah, but I was very surprised when he mentioned that maternal mortality might still be on the table. 
Um, that was extremely yeah. interesting yeah. to me. And then that goes into the, the urban-rural divide that, that James was just mentioning. A, lo- a lot of the women who are the most vulnerable are ones who are living in rural areas and, and don't live so near to a hot, you know, so close to a hospital or don't have access to gyms or healthy food or uh, a lot of that stuff. So I was very surprised to hear that. It also speaks to right now so much of our debate about um, about racial differences and and just right now the the number of African Americans who are getting infected at, at much higher rates um, or, or sorry the deaths at much higher rates than than whites here in Georgia and and there's a similar divide with maternal mortality as well. Uh, I don't want to be a cynic, uh, but maternal mortality uh, there look there is some partisanship involved in all of this and um, Republicans are certainly hoping they can win uh, women vote v- votes in. The November election. And so you would think, Tamar, just to give you a quick second on this, that they recognize that that's an issue that women care about deeply. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you talk to a Democrat and they say this would be far less of a problem if, if Georgia expanded Medicaid. Right, exactly. All right, let's do this. We got to get a final break of uh, the show out of the way. When we come back, a couple of really interesting polls that I'd love to ask Tamar and James to comment on. You're listening to Political Rewind. Um, welcome back to Political Rewind. Tomorrow, I do want to talk about the polling that I mentioned before the break, but very quickly, you filed a story in which you said that contact tracing uh, may be getting, uh, uh, maybe can't get up to speed in time to catch the rapid spread of the virus. We haven't talked much about the coronavirus story today. Just give us a quick summary, and then we'll post a link to your article about this on our uh, social media platforms. What are the concerns? Sure. You you talk to experts and they say that you need thousands of contact tracers in a state like Georgia to keep up with all of the the infections that we have right now. And and currently, Georgia is logging about 700 new infections a day. And uh, Kathleen Toomey, the the director of public health in Georgia, mentioned that she wants to hire about 1,000 contact tracers. Now we only have about 250. So that's a rapid increase. But still, experts say you need many more than that to keep it in line. And there's a real question of, of whether the state will have enough tracers at the end of the day to, to trace every single case that comes up, or if right now they're going to have to focus only on vulnerable people living in nursing homes or folks working in hospitals. All right, so we'll post that on our, as I said, our social media. Uh, James, you uh, had an interesting story that despite lots of economic uh, difficulties people are experiencing out there, um, Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight Georgia, uh, had a big fundraising uh, 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 quarter. They are continuing to raise a lot of money, yes? Yeah, they've raised now $22 million since um, the – since they started right after the 2018 election, it w- the one that, the part that surprised me, I mean, they have, they've, they've kind of continued her tradition when she was a candidate, which is having a national, a broadband-based, um, you know, following um, and, and tens of thousands of contributors. But uh, what I, what I guess it was a little bit more surprised about was they still raised half a million dollars in April when the economy was shut down. I mean, yeah. half a million dollars is more than like I think all the legislative candidates and statewide candidates combined in that month. And, and um, to me, that's they, just amazing. It, and they, they have, and they're, they're, what the, one of the things they're doing is they're spending $2 million uh, uh, so far on uh, setting up uh, organizations at Democratic parties around the country 
uh, to look at voting issues, and, and I, I forgot the exact title they used. Um, uh, they have people working in, right. in there, 19 different parties. They're a powerful fundraising machine. Thank you. We can put that link up, too. Uh, uh, for people if they want to see the story. You filed it a couple days back, but it's still a a pertinent story. All right, I want to talk very briefly, because we're running out of time, about the Washington Post-Ipsos poll, which was just released. Um, It's a poll of, uh, they surveyed uh, uh, people in many states across the country and uh, asked about the approval ratings for governors. And the lead of this article says basically this, that uh, two states that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 have very are on different ends of the spectrum when it comes to how the people in those states feel about their governors. Mike DeWine in Ohio, a state that went for Trump, has an approval rating of 86%. People feel he has dealt with coronavirus in the best way possible. And they say on the other end of the spectrum, Georgia, where only 39% of the people surveyed by Ipsos approve of the way in which Governor Kemp has handled uh, the virus here. That may be one of the, you know, I I think the governor is is not going to be paying attention to this poll specifically. But Tamar, it's clear that this afternoon when he says he's going to keep some things shut, he wants to be a little Mm -hmm. cautious because this poll was taken after the state basically was allowed to open for most businesses. Tamar? Yeah, and that, that falls in line with a poll that um, that we saw in Georgia at the end of April from the University of Georgia that said roughly 62% of Georgia voters disapproved of Kent's decision to ease um, a lot of the restrictions on restaurants, theaters, businesses, close contact businesses. So interesting to see it compared, though, with Ohio, which that's a comparison I've seen a lot because the, the population is about the same as Georgia's and it's a Republican governor. Yeah, but what's interesting, James, is that Governor DeWine is now beginning to open up Ohio as well. The difference is uh, he believes that people have felt confident for months now that he has taken the steps necessary to really control the virus, whereas in Georgia we're still not certain whether the virus really is starting to recede, right? Right. I mean, and we also, if if I remember correctly, I mean, he, he he was active on this before we were. And so we got in, we got in, you know, we kind of shut things down late. We're getting out early. Um, it's a little premature because we don't know. The reality is we don't, the experts can tell us uh, this is a terrible idea, but we don't know. We don't know. They, they don't know. We don't know um, what it, this is going to look like a month from now. So the governor is obviously taking a chance, but we'll see. We've said uh, all along that there are risks involved in opening the governor is pleased and told us also in, uh, in a news release that uh, hospitalizations are down. The virus isn't spreading uh, as, as, as fast as it had before, but everyone is waiting. The use of ventilators is down, but we're still waiting. We don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So it, it's, a, it's a gamble, and we'll keep on top of it. We are out of time for today's Political Rewind. Uh, James Salzer, I really appreciate your being with us. We look forward to your continuing to follow this budget for us. Tamar Hallerman, another Tuesday when I'm really pleased that you could be on Political Rewind. Thank you very much. Have fun with your dog, Winnie. We'll see you all soon. We'll be back on Political Rewind again tomorrow. Uh, Thanks to uh, Tom Faust, Amber Mastaz, and Jesse Neiswanger for another 
uh, noble effort of keeping this show on the air. See you all tomorrow.